thankful for the way these stories hold on to the lifetime we won't get back. I know these rivers carry Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and our guest on this episode is our connection, is Kankakee County's connection to James Bond 007. You may know him already. You probably do because he's a man that is well-connected in our community besides James Bond as well, and that is Doug Redinius. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you here, and it's been a while since I've even seen you. I can't even remember the last time I saw you. Nor can I. Before we get deep into James Bond, because obviously there's a lot of meat and potatoes there when it comes to... 60 years. Right, when it comes to James Bond. But first, let's talk about you, Doug. Mm -hmm. You are... Briefly mentioned before we started recording, you are from St. Anne, right? Uh, Are you born and raised? Born and raised in St. Anne, yeah. Went to uh, St. Anne High School, graduated in 1974. And how did your family end up settling in Kankakee County? My father's family is uh, from the Gilman Crescent City area, but my mother was a POTS, P-O-T-T-S, and they were from right across the Illinois border around Rensselaer and uh, Morocco, just, okay. you know, more yeah. more Morocco than Rensselaer. That's but, not uh, far at all. Yeah. And my grandfather moved from out in the middle of nowhere into St. Anne. So that's how my mother grew up in St. Anne. Isn't there a Redinius funeral home? Jim. Or? Yeah. Jim. Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, we believe that we're second cousins. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I kind of figured because you're the only one I know besides the, the well, funeral the inter- home. Yeah, the interesting know? thing when I grew up as a kid and we used the old-fashioned phone books, there were only three Redeniuses in the phone book back then. There was uh, my father, who was Glenn Redenius, and his brother was Ron Redenius, and then they... Both of them had a first cousin named Don Redenius, and Don's son, Bruce, uh, sadly passed away a few months ago. But those were the only Redeniuses that I was aware of until many, many years later. Now all of those kids have had kids, and they've had kids, and there's quite a few. But when you hear Redenius Funeral Home advertised on the radio, people get familiar with that name. And that's probably, I would imagine, the question you get asked most often Mm -hmm. is if you're related to the, or if you're the one that runs that funeral home or, 
your family or whatever. It's interesting to grow up and have people find that your name is quite unusual and they've never heard of it to becoming an older person and all of a sudden Redenius is pretty common. Yeah. Now, Redenius is is what? What's the lineage or where is the, do you know where that comes from? I'll tell you two things I know about that. The first thing is when I was growing up, my grandmother, my dad's mother, we were always told that it was German. But back in 2002, I did a big celebrity, I put on a big celebrity golf tournament in the UK right about the time that Pierce Brosnan's last Bond movie was coming out, which would have been Die Another Day with Halle Berry. And all of the stars, all the actors and everything from that film were at this golf fundraiser. And the actor John Cleese, who at that time was married to a woman from Chicago, and we were standing at the bar together talking And uh, John said, how do you pronounce your last name? And I told him. And he said, oh, I know all about that. I know where your family is from. And and about that time, John's wife said, good luck. And she turned and walked away. (laughs) And I found out later that he's a fanatic on uh, genealogy. And he went into this half-hour recital of telling me the different derivations of my last name, that it wasn't actually German. It was more in the Yugoslavia, Ukraine. It was, was, I have to admit, it was pretty fascinating. However, as the host of this huge event, I had other things that I needed to focus on. (laughs) But you just don't walk away from John I was going to say, you don't just walk away, so you're stuck. Yeah, right. But it was pretty fascinating. Gosh. Yeah. The con I can feel that conflict you're talking. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I feel- <laughs> I'm feeling that right now, that conflict. You might- you're <clears throat> probably in amazement, but at the same time, you've got all these things you gotta get done. You're the host of this huge event. Well, well later these- in the evening, his wife came over to me and she put her arm around me. She said, I see you survived John's little uh history lesson on who you are. And I said, yeah, I did. She said, yeah, I apologize. He does that to everybody. I love in that story how she just walks away. Yeah, she did. She just (laughs) said good luck and walked away. So, but that's what I was told growing up that it was based in German, Dutch. Yeah, obviously European. You grew up in St. Anne. You now live in Moments. Right. And then since retiring the post office, I know you've been seen here and there in different jobs, like I mentioned, Napleton. Yeah, that's all after I had retired from that. But um, my involvement with the James Bond side of things, Yes, I guess I had always been a James Bond fan. I saw my first Bond movie in 1964. And was it Dr. No? The no, first it was the Goldfinger. It was Goldfinger. The first film was Dr. No. That was 62. And then another second film was From Russia With Love. And then Goldfinger was the third. Saw that in the theater. Ultimately saw it with my father in the theater. And, and we would go see every Bond movie after that together until he passed away. And But I had always been... That was nothing more than just reading the paperback books and 
discovering Ian Fleming and seeing the movies every few years. I was going to say, did you read the books? I did. I mean, I saw Goldfinger and then found out that they had these paperback books of the novels. So I devoured all those. Fleming had written 14 books. So I read all of those. But really, that's that's all it was. I was just like millions of other people just enjoyed the subject. And you went on with your day. I did. I mean, I had always been, I'm an only child. So I, I, I'd always been, I built model kits when I was a kid. And I loved antiques. My wife and I were, we were collecting antiques up until about 1979, 1980. And if you get carried away collecting antiques and you live in a small apartment or a small house, it can really, you can collect yourself out of room, house and whole, you know, yeah. (laughs) So we got rid of everything and I didn't do anything. I didn't collect anything. I didn't even have any other interests at that time. I was just working. And my wife said, you should, just pick something, you know, just have a hobby, just pick something and collect it. So it could have been anything. It could have been typical baseball card collector. It could have been beer cans. It it literally could have been anything. And I had remembered that when I was a kid, there were these gum cards. You could go to the five and dime and buy a pack of gum. It had collector cards in it. So I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. So I thought, well, maybe I'll see what there is to collect. And I put an ad in the Kankakee paper, and it was basically, it said something like, uh, local collector looking to collect anything James Bond related. And there was a fellow that lived in town. His name was Dave Jamaris. He called me up and he said, yeah, I've got a few things, you know, you want to come over to the house and look at it. So I did. And so you randomly just picked James. Bond I did. I mean, your... it could have been anything. It literally yeah. could have been anything. It, it, I could have collected newspapers or pop bottles or anything, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So you go to, D- I, I went Dave. to Dave's house yeah. and uh, I bought a little gold Aston Martin Corgi car made by the Corgi company. And a couple of little figures. I think back then I paid 10 or $15 for all of it. And that's basically what started it. I mean, I th- came home and I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. So I just kind of kept my eye out. Now, you have to remember, this was, this was 1980. So nobody had a cell phone. There was no social media. There was no internet. If you were a collector of anything you literally would have to get in a car and drive and go to a flea market or a toy show or an antique show. Were there collector magazines? Yeah, there were. Yeah, that's right. There were like catalogs. There were collector catalogs. There were magazines that were printed that had everything in it. You know, if you were a Barbie collector or G.I. Joe collector, the magazines were just full of that stuff that dealers would put an ad in. And then you could write to them, send them a check, and they would box it up and send it to you. I guess you could say that once the ball started rolling down the hill, it, for me anyway, it just snowballed. It just got, it got to be addictive to where I, I was just 
infatuated with trying to collect anything because I actually did think it would come to an end. I thought, okay, I've got everything. It's it's over with. And at that point, you probably weren't thinking of investing into literal vehicles from the films. No, no, that, that part came many, many years later. So in 1980, it moved along rather quickly. And so you were collecting toys and yeah, pretty much mem- anything, yeah. posters, books, magazines. Any, if it was, if it had the name or logo on it or anything, I would just pick it up. And back then, it, it was relatively cheap. You know, I wasn't spending hundreds of dollars for a particular item because you didn't have to. There was a lot of that stuff around, and it was newer. Yeah, the franchise. I mean, in was... 1980, anything from 1965 was only 15 years prior, so it wasn't yeah. it wasn't considered an antique or was considered old. But what it what had happened was, I was also buying these foot lockers, trunks that you could buy at Kmart back in those days or Kresge's, <laughs> and I was just storing this stuff in there. We had just moved into a house. And uh, didn't have a room where you could display it. So you'd you'd buy it, you'd look at it, you'd appreciate it, and then it went into a trunk and you didn't get a chance to really enjoy it. So because I grew up in St. Anne, I knew that there was a gymnasium associated with the Catholic Church. St. Anne used to have a Catholic school that had long since been torn down, but they had still had a gymnasium. So... I rented the gymnasium and set up about 50 tables, and I laid all this stuff out because, A, I I just wanted to organize it, and, B, I wanted to take some video and photographs of it. So what I did is I thought, well, I'm never going to do this again, so I'm going to invite some people to come and take a look at it. And one of those invitations found its way, and I, to this day, I still don't know how it did, but... It found its way to New York City, and it found its way to the law offices of the attorneys that represented the Broccoli family, the producers of the Bond movies. And it was a guy named Mike Beck who had a legendary film career that went all the way back into the 30s. Anyway, the letter stated that as much as he appreciated, they appreciated what I was doing, that I'd be very careful that I wasn't infringing on anybody's copyrights or anything. I still have the letter. <laughs> what, what would you be infringing upon if you were going to sell this no, stuff? Well, they or? thought possibly I was uh, charging tickets to get in and look at this okay. stuff. Or maybe I had established a permanent place. and So... I rang up his office in New York and I basically said, if I fly out to New York, would you allow me to, would you meet with me so I can explain this misunderstanding? I didn't have to do that. You know, obviously. Were they going to press charges? No, they weren't. No, you just I could have just read the letter and threw it in the garbage (laughs) and that would have been it. But But you were kind of like, oh, wow, I kind of want to meet meet with him. Yeah. I guess looking back, I don't remember exactly what the underlining reason why I actually did it, but uh, I did. And I flew out there and they met and Mike and I just clicked. We just hit it off. And 
he obviously had never seen that much stuff before. That's how much stuff you had, I guess. I had quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Not compared to what I ended up finally having in my collection. but No, uh, but at that point, and this was still the 1980s. This would have been... Or was this later? No, I'm, I'm going to say that this must have been around 85, okay. somewhere around 85, about five. Okay. I had been collecting for about five years. About five years. years, okay. So he introduced me to a man who would become my mentor, a guy named Charles Giroux with a J. They called him Jerry. And he was the publicist for the Bond movies. And he was a war hero, World War II, and became very, very close. In fact, Jerry died last year at 94, but wow. he, he was like a second father to me. That's how close we became. I'm sorry for your loss. And he was the guy, thanks. He was the guy who opened up all the doors for me, meeting all the producers and the actors and ultimately... Uh, just being brought into the fold, if you will, of the franchise. So <laughs> if you look back, that letter, if I'd have crumpled that letter up and threw it away and just went on, I, none of none of this would have transpired. But so anyway, the collecting continued and around 19, well, before I get into the foundation part of things, Jerry invited my family and I to fly to London in 1987 for the premiere of The Living Daylights, which was a Timothy Dalton film. And back then, the premiere parties were very intimate. There was only about 300 people at the premiere party. So you were like surrounded by all the movie stars. I mean, you were sitting at banquet tables shoulder to shoulder with everybody. Nobody was separated from anybody. That was pretty incredible. And then two years later, Tim made a movie called The License to Kill. He just did two. He did. Yeah. And Jerry invited us to go to Key West, Florida to hang out on the set. And he said, bring a suit. I'll you know, I'll put you in the film. You can be an extra in the film. So I ended up on set for three days of filming. It was very hot. It was about 100 degrees every... This was Key West, Florida in the, and, in the summer. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was... <laughs> of all the time they picked a film, it's yeah. right in the summer. And we were at a wedding. Uh, it was a wedding scene. I was in a suit and tie, so it was extremely hot. Oh, man. Did you make it in the final cut? Yeah, I'm in the film. You have okay. to. You, it's one of those situations where you have to know where to look. But when you look and you go, oh yeah, yeah. But can, it's uh, so. It's, can you kind of explain exactly where to look? Every Bond movie has what's called a pre-title sequence. Every Bond movie before the actual movie starts has like a mini movie. Sometimes they're connected. Sometimes they're not. Kind of connected. So license to kill has a pre-title sequence and it, there's a wedding going on and Carrie Lowell is in the film. Robert Davi is in the film. So those scenes for the pre-title sequence, the wedding at the church and the reception and all that, uh, that's what I was involved in. And because we had been to London in 80, 
seven, we became friends with the director, John Glenn, who directed five Bond movies. He... That's quite a few. Yeah, it was back then. And he worked on many others, but as a director, he had directed five. When we were on this, I'll, I'll never forget, we, my wife and my daughter, was they, they could come to the set. It got kind of boring. Like any motion picture is really boring. People think it's really cool to be on a movie set. It's very boring. It's hurry up and wait it from is. what yeah, I'm it is. been told. It is. It is. I mean, it can be kind of cool. It's a cool experience. But for people that, I mean, we were shooting 12-hour days. So for her and my daughter to not be out doing something and enjoying Key West and enjoying Florida, it got to be a little bit. But uh, but I can remember because I was friends with the Broccoli's, the producers, and got to know the actors and the director, they were called extras back then. They're now called background players, the people that make up scenes. So whenever we would break for lunch, I'd always go eat with the actors and the director. So after the second, after the first day, I came back and there was a whole bunch of the extras part of the wedding. And they said, how do you get to go eat with everybody? And I said, well, I said, I just happen to be friends with everybody. They said, well, why are you an extra? Why aren't you something else? I said, <laughs> I wasn't even going to do this. They just asked me to come and just come and do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not really an actor. I'm just here. <laughs> but it was funny because after that then anytime my scenes were being shot, uh, all these people that I'd been talking to all tried to migrate over to where I was at. <laughs> We're going to hang out with this guy. Yeah, right. This guy seems to yeah. know people that we don't know and that we want to know. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. It was a great experience. I really enjoyed doing it. And uh, got to be friends with a lot of great people. Is so. that the only film that you were a background player in? Yeah, I had. Been, I had. I was asked during the Pierce Brosnan years. The producers. I'd go to London quite often whenever they were shooting at Pinewood, and I was asked several times because if you were dressed appropriately as an ordinary citizen would be dressed for any particular scene. When they get ready to shoot a scene, they just have you walk across the street or or sit down at a table or anything. There wasn't much to becoming a background player. But I didn't. I'd rather, at the studio, I'd rather be on the other side and just watch what's going on. It was far more interesting. So how many movies, since we're on the subject, how many Bond films were you on the set of? All of them from 87 until the last three, I was not. No Time to Die wasn't. Spectre and Skyfall. But uh, so how many is that? It's a lot. That's a lot. That's a yeah. lot. Yeah. All of all of Brosnan's films, all yeah. of Dalton's, and two, I guess three. One, three or, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace. And Skyfall? Oh. Uh, or you said you didn't go. You weren't at Skyfall. No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. oh yeah, actually, I was at Skyfall. Okay. They weren't filming. I was at the studio and walked through the sets. Okay. But didn't actually see them filming. That's so. still cool, though, because, I mean, that is one of the more recent. Yeah. Very, very successful Bond films, Skyfall. It was yeah. huge. 
And I can tell you it's the difference between night and day from 87 until, what would that have been, 2015, 16, I guess. Yeah. It's the difference between night and day. Back then, you could go to Pinewood Studios and get on pretty easily if you had a reason to be there. It's like Fort Knox now. Even if you think you have a legitimate reason for being there, you got to go through screening and background checks and everything. It's probably like going to a, a military. It's a Disney camp. property now, so I mean, they, they they things are just run completely different. What was your favorite film to be on set for? Was there anyone in particular that you always think of? Does it always go back to the very first one or does... Well, the first ones... one was, was a completely different experience because I was actually part of that one. I certainly enjoyed the Pierce Brosnan's film. He was new in the role. I mean, GoldenEye was his first film. He was very friendly. I got to be pretty good friends with him over the years when he was playing the character. We'd see each other. We did some events together over the years. Always engaging, always fun to be around. It was always a blast to be on the set whenever he was filming. When Daniel made Casino Royale, now that was his first film, uh, that was a pretty major production because it, they were rebooting the entire franchise. But that one was, that was fun to be watching that be filmed. No, I don't, other than the one that I was actually a part of, the other ones were fascinating. So who's your favorite Bond? Well, I'm, of my age, it's Sean Connery. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever meet Sean? Probably I, not. I, I never did. I had an, uh, an opportunity once and it didn't work out, but he has called my house several times. I'm friends with his son, Jason. I've just opened a dialogue with Jason recently. We're having a big event in September in Los Angeles, so we're inviting anybody that's ever been connected to the franchise to come, and we we send him an invitation. We're just waiting to see if his schedule will allow him to come. But I had mentioned previous that I had put a celebrity golf tournament on in, yes. in England. Well, I put three celebrity golf tournaments on in England. The first we had... I think we had 175 people at the very first one, and it was held at the golf course that you see in Goldfinger. Okay. So the golf course that you see that Sean Connery and Gert Frobe playing golf as Bond and Goldfinger, that's a golf course called Stoke Park. It's at a place called Stoke Poges. The clubhouse is like... Out of this world. Well, it's 800 years old. Yeah. It might even be a little older than that. Is that just outside London or where exactly is It's not is very that? far from Pinewood Studios. It's okay. west. It's west of London. It's about, by train, it's about 20 minutes or 25 minutes by train. But uh, So we had about 175 people at that golf event. And then a year or two later, we did another one. And I think we had about... 275, just under 300 people. And then the very last one we did, we had over 500 people there. Wow. Those were major undertakings to try and organize a golf event when you live, you know, 1,500 miles away. And 500 people. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was nerve wracking. It was a lot of fun. It was very successful. We raised a lot of money. 
And was that for the Ian Fleming Foundation? We weren't then? The, no, we weren't the beneficiaries of the fundraiser. It was UNICEF was the beneficiary. Okay. Yeah. So I guess where does the Ian Fleming Foundation come into play then? So in 1990, 1991, probably 91, a friend of mine in Los Angeles, <laughs> who oddly, I should tell you a little bit of the backstory with Mike. His name is Mike Van Blaircom, V-A-N, capital B-L-A-R-I-C-U-M, Van Blaircom. Mike was a, he's an electrical engineer. Him and his brother have a company in California, Santa Barbara. Mike is a graduate of the U of I. I first met Mike in 1983 accidentally at a convention in New York City. Like a collector's convention. Uh, yeah, of some sort of. Kind. Yeah, and he was a book dealer, and him and his wife were at, at a table, and he had a bunch of books. And I walked up, my wife and I were there. I walked up and started talking to him. And small talk goes, you know, where yeah. you're from. And I said, Well, I'm from a little small town south of Chicago. And Mike says, So what's the name of it? And I said, Well, I grew up in St. Anne, but I said, We live in moments. And Mike looks at me and he goes, uh, I'm from Moments. I said, you're from Moments. <laughs> he goes, well, my dad used to be the principal at Moments back in the 60s. Oh, my gosh. And he said, I didn't graduate from there. I did go to school for a number of years there. And then we moved to Princeton, Illinois. And he said, that's where I went to high school. So we instantaneously had a connection. So if you... Flash forward from 83 until 91, and we we had been in communication between that time, but the phone rings and Mike says to me, do you want to buy a submarine? And I kind of laughed and I thought, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, well, the, the film producers have just called and the Intrepid Aircraft Carrier Museum in New York City reached out and said that they have one of our submarines from a Bond movie, and they wanted to know if we want it back. And we told them, no, we don't want it back. But, you know, if you hold on, I think somebody, we know somebody that might want to do something with it. So the guy's name was Saul Cooper. He called Mike on the phone and he said, the Intrepid is, they're either going to sell this submarine to a diving club and the diving club is going to sink it off a of long island they're going to dive down to it or maybe you guys could make a donation to the museum and restore it so that's how the phone call came to me mike didn't want to do it on his own so he called our other partner there's three of us the other one is a screenwriter friend of ours named john cork so John put in $1,500 and Mike put in $1,500. We made a $3,000 donation to the Intrepid. And then my donation was to go get it and restore it. And that's what I did. It used to sit in my backyard in, in St. Anne, which was kind of the talk of the town. <laughs> Some guy's got a submarine in his backyard. And at that point... Was the Ian Fleming Foundation in place or was it kind of after this restoration? No, 
It's right. You're right. It it came after because after we said yes, and I went and got it. We were then in uh, in conversations about okay, what are we going to do with this thing? Mike lived in Santa Barbara, John lived in Los Angeles, and I lived in Moments. And it isn't something that somebody has in their collection that you don't put in your garage. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's pretty big. It's twenty four feet. Oh my gosh! So we bantered around the idea of uh, we should try and do something that is meaningful with this thing. You know, we should try and maybe create a a nonprofit. See if we can do something with charity. So we threw some names around and went back and forth and back and forth, and and we ultimately agreed that we wanted to use Fleming's name. So we reached out to the Fleming family and uh, ultimately had Fleming family members sit on our board of directors after that. But That's they, gave, incredible. they gave us the permission to do it. And so we formed the foundation. And then the phone rang one day and it was a company called Reed Exhibitions. And I had finished the submarine. It looked beautiful. We had had it painted. Randy Blanchett at Blanchett's in St. Anne was brave enough to take it on to paint this submarine. So we had it looking really, really good. And uh, it was then sitting in my backyard. And somehow or another, you, you never really know how someone hears of something. You know, you don't. You just don't know. Just like I told you, I, I had no idea how the producers ever found out I set stuff up in a I'm, gymnasium. I'm still baffled by yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know. Honestly. I just don't know. Considering it's yeah. 1985. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, my phone rang at home, and this was 1991. We had just finished the restoration. And or we were underway with the restoration. I take that back. We were underway with the restoration. And it turned out to be a reporter for People Magazine. And in 91, People Magazine was the place for social media. I mean, it was a paper version of what social media is today. People Magazine is still on the newsstands today. But it back is. then, it was the monster. It's like Variety magazine for the entertainment industry. And they wanted to do a feature about a guy that had a submarine in his backyard. I mean, they found out about it. So I agreed to do it. And it fell into the issue that Liz Taylor was marrying Larry Fortinsky and Michael Jackson was her best man. Oh my gosh. It was like, wow. I mean, if you could, if you had to pick back then, back then, <laughs> if you had to pick an issue that would sell millions of copies, that's the issue that this story was in. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so the people at a company called Reed Exhibitions, and th what they do is they do, they did back then, they did the National Auto Show Tour. So they went to all the major cities. They went to Atlanta, Miami, Houston, Seattle. They went all over the country. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to create a little traveling exhibit of Bond vehicles. So they said, would you rent us your submarine? And we, th we thought, ah, here you. this is how we're going to raise money for charity. 
But their question was, do you know where there are any other Bond vehicles? And I did. I did know where there were some others. At that point, I would think you would know at least of a couple. I knew, I knew where there were about three. And they said, well, if you'll tell us how to get a hold of them, we'll get those part of the exhibit. And I said, no, I won't. I said, but I tell you what I will do. I said, we'll draw up a contract that I'll reach out to the three private individuals that own these vehicles. And if they're willing to sell them, you'll buy them. They'll travel with our vehicle in the auto show tour. And at the end of the tour, you'll donate those vehicles to us. And and they didn't even hesitate. They said, oh, that's great. We'll, yeah, we'll do that. Smart thinking, man. So that's smart thinking on your part. So all of a sudden we went what from a deal. having a submarine to we had four pretty iconic vehicles right off the bat. So what were those vehicles then? Well, one of them was the Lotus submarine car from The Spy Who Loved Me. That's iconic for yeah. sure. Another one was uh, an escape bathos sub from Diamonds Are Forever that Blofeld tries to escape on the oil derrick, the oil platform. And the other one was, you know, right off the top of my head, I can't remember what the other one was, but there were three that they bought and they ended up donating them all to us. And then that's where it snowballed. It also helped that that issue brought out people that had stuff. My uncle's got a boat from a Bond movie. My dad's friend knows where there's a James Bond car. And back in those days, uh, you could pick that stuff up for next to nothing. You know, you could pick that stuff up pretty cheap. I think the most we ever, we own 41 vehicles now. The most we ever paid is we paid $65,000 for the 1969 Mercury Cougar that was used in Honor Majesty's Secret Service and driven by Diana Rigg. The sister car to that one, because there were three made for the film, the sister car to that one sold for a half a million dollars two years ago. So a $65,000 investment for a car that's worth a half a million dollars now is not too bad. No, that's uh, not bad at all. I'm surprised that I'm just surprised that that car is worth that much. Well, it's it's a 69 Cougar with a 428 Cobra jet in it. So it's it's a highly sought after muscle car. Plus, it's a convertible. But it must to, be more or less about the the value in the actual car because that wasn't a major Bond film. It wasn't a very uh, popular one. Well, it made money. George wasn't all that popular, but it's extremely popular today. So, I mean, we, we've accumulated a lot of fascinating vehicles. I think all the vehicles, well, first of all, I know that all the vehicles that we own were either used by a villain or the hero by Bond himself. We don't have any replicas. They're all the original vehicles from the film. And we recently, a year ago, became part of an exhibit that's at one of the most prestigious museums in the world, the Peterson Museum in Los Angeles. And it, the exhibit is called Bond in Motion. Sadly, it's coming to an end in October. But Could it possibly go somewhere else? Yeah, I else? mean, we're negotiating to, to try and move it somewhere else. But we're, we're partners with the Bond producers. We have 28 vehicles in there, and they have eight of their vehicles in the film. So we have, there's 36 vehicles in this exhibit. 
it's a jaw-dropping exhibit. And I've done <laughs> I've done a lot of exhibits all over the world, and this one is ranks at the very top. It's fabulous. It, it comes really it comes to the end of October, you said? It does. The twenty third of October is the last day for it. Whenever you're partners with the producers, you get to use all the images, all the logos, all the videos. I mean, it's official. It's an official exhibit. So every one of our vehicles, as it's on display, has its own television monitor looping and playing the scene of that vehicle in the film over and over again, along with blown up posters and images of the vehicle being used. It's just, it's just really great it completes the it does completes we, it. we've had exhibits where you can't do that kind of stuff because you don't have the you don't the have rights. the rights yeah yeah it's very expensive and if you were to get the rights like as you said to to get a license for those rights right. it would be like it's, through the it's through the roof <laughs> extremely expensive yeah. yeah right i don't know how it works now because the franchise sold again right does that include all of the rights to the films or is that just for like the future? Well, the interesting story of who owns the rights to the Bond property, there were two producers at the very beginning. There was Harry Saltzman, who was a Canadian producer, who bought the rights to all of Fleming's books, all but one, all but and two. And, there were, two. and there were 14 books. Yeah, so he, he had the rights to make all of them except... Thunderball and Casino Royale. He didn't have the rights to those. So he needed a partner and he he partnered up with Cubby Broccoli and they made Dr. No in 1962. And then in 1974, they had a falling out. And in the middle of the night, Harry Saltzman sold his 50% to the film studio. Would that have been Universal no, or United Arts? Or it was United MGM? Artists. It was yeah, United, United, Artists. United Artists. But let me explain for your audience the difference sure. between a, a production company and a film studio. Eon Productions, the, the production company that makes the Bond movies, they're the creative entity. They hire the actors. They write the scripts. They okay the locations. And then the film studio is called upon to pay for all that and distribute the film. So that's the difference between it's simplified, but that it sort of puts it in perspective of the difference between a production company and a, and a film studio. So Harry sold his 50% to the studio that paid for the movies and distributed the movies. And then over the years, that studio would go bankrupt. And when their property was bought, another studio would become the 50% owners. So what happened recently is Amazon bought the studio. So now Amazon owns 50% of the Bond franchise, but they don't get to make the decisions on who the actor is or actors are. They don't get to okay the script. They just do what studios do. They pay for it and they distribute it. That's what they do. Well, thank goodness it's that and not, I feel like the other stuff is so much more important. You know, oh, I mean, they're both yeah. very important. So the the fifth, the other 50% is still part of the broccoli they own it. family. And right? they're a family business. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. You'll soon see, if not already, 
what'll happen is it'll be exclusive. It'll be on Amazon when all the other contracts expire. Yeah. And, and, you know, Amazon owns other streaming services that you're not aware of because they're not called Amazon, but they own them anyway. Yeah, so, exactly. We all know the, the monster that is Amazon. We know how huge. Yeah. They right. are. I mean, you might somebody might say, and I just use Hulu as an example. You might say, "Oh, there's a Bond movie on Hulu." Well, Amazon owns Hulu, <laughs> you know. So yeah, yeah, right. So you said forty, forty-one, forty-one vehicles now, mm -hmm. and these are all in different places. I mean, well, all when they're not touring, and luckily for us, the Bond in Motion exhibit lasted seven years in England. So we had a number of vehicles that weren't here that were making us money over in England. So I didn't have to worry about keeping them maintained and I didn't have to worry about storing them. But any given time, we do have vehicles that are idle that aren't on tour and we keep them here locally. It's easy to keep them here in the Midwest because you, you can jump off to the East Coast or you can jump off to... Uh, California. I've shipped vehicles to New Zealand and Australia before, so it's easier to do it in this location. And then if they do continue after California, they'll then move across to wherever that's going to be. And I won't have to worry about those vehicles for a while. If they don't take all 28 of them, if they only take part of them, then we'll have a few back here that we have to take care of. What are the most current vehicles that you have from, do you have any from the more recent films or is it mainly from like the Brosnan Well, I can tell era? you, I can tell you, we'll start at the beginning. Nobody has anything from Dr. No. Nobody. I mean, there's a couple of film props that the producers have. They have a photograph and they have a bottle of champagne and that's all they have from Dr. No. We own the helicopter from Russia with Love. That's the earliest film that we have. And the last film that we have anything from is uh, Skyfall. We have the big caterpillar excavator from the pre-title sequence. That's One of the a, best pre-title sequences really cool. ever, especially the part with the caterpillar. Yeah, it's I pretty mean... cool. <laughs> so we don't have anything from Spectre. We don't have anything from Quantum of Solace which was prior to Skyfall. And we don't have anything from No Time to Die. So, but we never say never. We always keep our eyes open. We did bid on something that came up for auction that we could have afforded from No Time to Die, and it got way too high, and we just backed out. There's 41 stories for all 41 vehicles, and they'd take up your whole show if I told you. <laughs> one vehicle would take up one whole show. But, but I'll tell you the last vehicle that we got about a year ago. We got it about a year ago. Out of the blue, I received an email from a guy in Canada, and he said, you might want to take a look at this. So I thought, okay. Now, this happens a lot. I get a lot of people that say, I know where there's a Bond vehicle, and it turns out that it's not. Somebody told somebody many years ago, and that mistaken perception has carried on for decades, and it turns out to be just BS. But anyway, I never want to discount anything. So I took a look at it, 
And the guy said, I think this is the actual jet star, Lockheed jet star, that was used in Goldfinger. So when Connery, as James Bond, is kidnapped about halfway through Goldfinger, and he's flown to Kentucky, he's wakes up on board a, a, a Lockheed jet star. Now, the first thing you have to understand is in 1964, that was very unusual because private jets were really at the very early stages. They didn't really start to become popular until about 61, 62. So this is 1964. And then at the end of the film, he's put on board a military Lockheed Jetstar, which turns out to be the exact same jet. They just painted it a little differently. And he's going to go see the president at the very end of the film. I knew what jet he was talking about. So, you know, I said, uh, where is it? And what makes you think it's the film? Well, jets have VIN numbers just like cars do. And the research this guy had done, he, he was a aviation nut. And I said, well, yeah, kind of looks like it could be. So he thought it was at a junkyard in Kansas City at one particular location. And I called him and I sent, I, actually, I emailed him and I sent a picture of this jet with trees growing up through it and everything, a complete pile of junk. And I said, is this your jet? Here's the VIN number. And they said, no, there's another airplane junkyard about 20 miles from where we're at. So there are two jet junkyards in Kansas City. Who knew? <laughs> so I called the other one and the guy said, oh, yeah, that's ours. We have that. And uh, I said, can you confirm that this is the VIN number? Can you confirm it? And they said, yeah, that's ours. It is. So a friend of mine that's part of the foundation, Colin Clark, he works for American Airlines. We we got on board a plane and flew to Kansas City to look at it, and it was bad. I'm telling you. It was the only thing that was left was the fuselage containing the cockpit. There were no seats in the cabin, no wings, no landing gear sitting on the ground, no engines, no nothing. It was just a metal tube. Once I did confirm that it was the real thing, I... I asked him, I said, can I buy 25 feet of it? Can I buy from the nose two rows of where the cabin would be? Because that's basically all you see in the film. The interior that you see in Goldfinger is all shot in a studio. That's not inside of a real jet. If you look how big it is, it's like two times bigger than an than actual, the jet. actual jet. It's like, it's like a hotel suite, and that's not the way that this is. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you do see the jet land when he arrives in Kentucky. You see, you see a taxi into a hangar. Then you see Connery put the steps down, and he walks out. And then you see him get on, walk up the steps and get on when he's going to see the president. So that's the section that I wanted. I wanted from the nose back, which measures 25 feet. And they said, sure. We'll cut it for you. So we paid $4,500 for it. And then we had to have it shipped back up here. And uh, we've been restoring it for the past year. And what we're doing is uh, it will look exactly like it looked in the film. And we're making a static display 
that the public will be able to walk up the steps and go into it and look at the cockpit and walk in the cabin. And we do have some seats that we've restored. And then they'll walk out the back. It's a huge piece of Bond history from arguably the the most popular Bond movie of all time. But here's the best part about it. When we went down to finalize, and we've been back down there several times to buy some parts that we needed, but on one of the trips, they brought out a big cardboard box with every conceivable record about that jet from the day it was built. The fact that they had that. Well, it isn't quite that unusual because when those jets would go from one ownership to another, all the flight manuals, all the maintenance manuals, and everything would go along with it. Is that like regulation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's standard. It's standard okay. practice okay. Uh, because the new owners would want to know what maintenance was ever done on it and so on and so forth. But anyway, we went right to 1964, the books, and we started looking around the time that they were filming Goldfinger. And sure enough, it's in there. You could see it. But here's the surprise. Elvis Presley flew on that jet as well, because Elvis ultimately bought two jet stars. He wanted to fly on one to see if he liked it or not. And our jet is one that Elvis flew on. And then our jet is also the jet that Muhammad Ali flew to Hawaii uh, to get on a commercial airliner, then to fly to Manila for the fight against Joe Frazier. So our jet has a little bit of history behind it. It's so, not just, I mean, James Bond is enough. And then yeah. you add those two things in there. Yeah, I know. It's pretty cool. I was, I was pretty shocked. Yeah. yeah, that is shocking. And what I want to know, though, is how in the world do you get a hold of a VIN number initially and, and know that's the VIN number from that jet? In well, the it's movie? pretty easy to do because uh, all of that information is online. You can go to public registration records. I don't think it's called public, but it, it's a database for airliners. It's a database for old airplanes. They'll tell you how many they built. I think they built 200 and some Jetstars, Series 1, Series 2, tells you every serial number. And I finally came across the website that broke it down for every single owner of our particular jet. So that kind of stuff isn't a secret. You know, it's pretty in the public domain. And aviation nuts are the people who compile all that information. But I wanted to make sure that it was the actual jet. Absolutely. You know? um, and that's why I wonder when when you come across these situations with these vehicles like the the Goldfinger jet, do you sometimes have to call in some type of expert or are you pretty much the expert and do all the no. investigating yourself? I mean, well, I guess the answer to that is uh, nobody knows more about bond vehicles than I do. At I this mean, point, especially. <laughs> it's a, it's it's I, I'm not saying that to be bragging. I'm not. I'm just saying that I've been doing it for 32 years. Even the film producers will call me to authenticate things. You know, and they're the people who make the movies. So <laughs> right. <laughs> I had a phone call about five years ago from a guy in Canada that thought he had one of the Moonraker boats. Now, we own 
one of the Moonraker boats. It's a big silver 20, or it's a big dark gray silver 23 foot glass drawn boat that was used in Moonraker where Roger Moore escapes by opening, blowing the roof off of it and a big hang glider comes out. Yes. And it's got a, it's got a torpedo launcher on the back of it. And one of the coolest it is. Bond it's very scenes cool. ever. So we own that boat. And I happen to know that they built four of them for the film. And ours is one of those four. And then they lost one over the falls. One of them got hung up on the rocks and ultimately went over the falls. So I knew that there was uh, at least one more uh, because we now know that the third one was destroyed too. So there was always one out there. And this guy called me about five years ago, and he wanted to know if there was a way I could authenticate his boat. He wanted to sell it. Had been in his family since 1979. And the story he told me about how he ended, how his family ended up with it made sense to me. But the thing I knew about those boats was they were built in consecutive order, and the last digit is a letter, H-I-J-K. I think ours is J. So I knew it fell within that range. But I also knew they only made those four specifically in that color. And I know how they make boats because I used to make, I used to spray fiberglass and made fiberglass swimming pools when I was much younger. So I know how you do it. It's a gel coat that you spray. And they made those four boats exclusively for the film with this dark gray color. Well, then COVID hit, uh, and I couldn't go up there. And then he got COVID. Then his father got COVID, and his father died. And then we just sort of put it on the back burner. Well, then earlier in the year, he reached back out and said he was still ready to sell it. So I flew up to Montreal a couple of weeks ago to physically look at it. I needed to physically look at it. And it is. It's the actual boat that was built for the film. The The sad news that I had to tell him was that it didn't appear in the movie. It was built for the movie and it was there to be used, but it wasn't needed to be used. So it still has a value. It still has a connection to the film. And he's going to ask 75,000 bucks for it, which is, it's fair. I, I told him I thought that was a good price for it. Our boat is insured for a half a million dollars because our boat has all the gadgets on it and was driven by Roger Moore and it appears in the film and it's a pretty... So your value goes way yeah, up. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. But I'm in the process of helping him try to find somebody to buy it. I brokered a deal to sell one of the Lotus submarine cars from The Spy Who Loved Me because there were multiples of that too. I sold one to Elon Musk for a million bucks a few years ago. <laughs> So, yeah. No big deal. Just sold one to Elon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, you probably just dealt with his people, I imagine. You he was probably... bidding on the phone. It was it sold. Was, yeah. The auction was held in London, and uh, so he was on the phone bidding. Uh, there were two bidders. They were started out, I think there were five bidders, and three dropped out pretty early. And then the two went back and forth. And then it ultimately sold for 900 and. I don't know, 60 some thousand, but it was over a million dollars with the, uh, with the auction fees and everything. And then I was a consultant on Goldfinger's Aston Martin, the one with the ejector seat and all that. 
that sold for $4.5 million. Now, is that the same one that appeared in Skyfall or is that? Well, it's the same kind of car, but not it, the it, same It car. wasn't. Yeah, okay. No, this were, was the like the original? There were or? two originals that were built for Goldfinger. There was a road car that didn't have all the gadgets on it. Then there was the car that had all the gadgets on it. And, and that it, was probably for this, like the studio Well, they, they can't. Or? They didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket and have the, the gadget car with all the gadgets do all the rough and driving scenes and something happened to it. So when you watch Sean Connery driving in Goldfinger, there are two different cars. You can tell because if you look at the front fenders, one car has a orange running light on it and the other car doesn't. So if you look really close at Goldfinger and you see a car that doesn't have the running light on it, you'll know that that's uh, the gadget car. So I have so much rewatching to do now. Yeah, <laughs> going through all this. Do you ever display any of the vehicles locally on occasion? Oh, we have over the years, but we haven't for a long time. Okay. Yeah, we haven't for a long time. They're kept locally. They're in a secure location. We work on them on a regular basis. There's some volunteers that live in town and some up in the Chicago suburbs. And some of these guys are retired so we can get together and work during the week. And some guys are still working. But turning the lights out and locking the door and leaving things sit is one thing. But when a vehicle needs a full restoration, you have to find time to do it. And we don't outsource any of our restoration. I mean, we do if it's painting, you know, you take a car and have it painted. But when you're rebuilding something from scratch, you're, you're the people who are doing it, you know, because only you know how it needs to be done. I never would have thought when I received a phone call, do you want to buy a submarine that would would lead to this? People ask me a lot, what's it like to take care of 41 vehicles? I tell them, I said, it's a pain in the, it's a pain <laughs> in the butt. It, really, it is. But I will, I will tell you, I can still visually in my mind's eye, I can remember the very first time I saw Goldfinger, I was nine years old. And uh, it was just cool. Nine years old, you're just, you're just fascinated. You know, I was just blown away and I was hooked. But then as an adult to become friends with all the actors and all of the subsequent films and I, I don't mean just friends. I mean socialize, go to their house, stay the night at their house, go go on vacation together, spend the holidays together. As that little kid that was sitting in the theater, for me, that's what I reflect on. I'm 66 years old now, and I, and I think back of I never would have guessed that that was going to be a possibility. And occasionally when I'm walking through the warehouse and, you know, to call it a night and I'm going to shut, turn the lights off and lock the door, I think it's not fair to take that for granted because there are people that would kill to be able to do that. There are people that would just think they died and went to heaven to be, to be the guy that takes care of things like that. And so I don't take it for granted. It, it, but it's like anything else. It's hard work. It can be f frustrating at times. It 
especially if you're moving 28 vehicles across the country. I mean, which you're sounds like you're about to do. Yeah. You need some help with that, by yeah. the way. I'd well, be happy and, to... <laughs> and, we, and that's a good point. I mean, we have a lot of great volunteers that uh, they know what they're doing. They've been volunteering for years. They know what how to move things. They know how things work because I can't I couldn't do it on my own. No, absolutely. Yeah, I just not. couldn't. 41 vehicles. And I mean, yeah. even if even with you and the two other partners mm -hmm. if it was just the three of you that would still be well and those guys didn't even live around here i mean for right. a long time it but a long time there was there were things that i did do all by myself i mean i restored the submarine all by myself i've i restored other things in my garage at home all by myself over a period of time but moving and maintaining and prepping and fixing when they break and all of that stuff and in the infancy of the foundation, we had no money. There were times I paid rent for the building out of my own pocket. Yeah. You know, the, thank God back then the rent was dirt cheap. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we do really well now with the exhibits because they become world events and, and they're in some of the best museums in the on the planet. And we turn around and we donate that money to charity. Nobody that's associated with the foundation makes any money. Nobody has ever been paid a salary. All the work and everything we do is voluntary. We have a website. It isn't quite the website that I would hope it would be. It's ianflemingfoundation.org. And Ian Fleming Foundation is actually all one long word. Yep. And then you just go in there and click on any film title and it'll show you the vehicles we own from that. And it'll tell you the story about the foundation. We were fortunate to have Ian Fleming's agent as our president for a long time. Wonderful man. He died a few years ago at 92. He was Winnie the Pooh's agent. He was a lot of famous authors in the UK. He represented Agatha Christie. He was Agatha Christie's agent. Yeah. Nice. So um, it's opened a lot of doors, and I'm very fortunate, and I'm lucky to still be able to physically do it. And I'm always looking for other vehicles. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, where I'll put them, I don't know. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, nowadays, people know what stuff is worth. Yes. Back then, they didn't. Yeah. Well, I was going to say with that jet you're talking about, in my mind, I'm just, my mind is blown that... It rotted away. This is the best part of the whole entire story. So that was a little over a year ago that I found it, confirmed it, bought it, shipped it. Okay. A few months ago, all of that junkyard was sold. The property, the 160 acres was sold. The guy who bought the property doesn't want the 3,000 jets. So now the owner, the previous owner that we bought the jet from, they're going to crush everything. They're going to shred it and get rid of it. That's how close that jet came to being lost forever. So it was a wonderful thing for us to be able to save it. And that was the mission of the foundation when we first incorporated. Our mission was to save these things for posterity and use them to raise money for charity. Especially something from that early on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The earlier, the better, because that stuff just doesn't exist anymore. No. And as you mentioned, from Dr. No, there's 
Nothing. <laughs> a few months ago, we thought we had a lead on, if you remember, Dr. No, it, there's a scene at the beginning of the film where this black hearse goes over the cliff and it crashes and catches fire. It's the very beginning of the film. We thought we had found the hearse. We tracked down the family that supplied the hearse for the motion picture. And they said years ago, it stopped running. Not not that many years ago. I'm going to say maybe 10 years ago. It stopped running and they parked it and vandals stripped it. So what they did is they just junked it and it was cut up for scrap. So it, it just goes to show that that was only 10 years ago. There's still some things that you might be able to discover if you know where to look and, you know. Again, mind is blown. It's the first James Bond film. You have the hearse. There's not much from, I would just think the amount of money that would have been worth. Oh, I know that. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I mean, I've been to Jamaica a few times. It's just that stuff doesn't resonate. You know, it was, it was an old V. They were still carrying dead bodies. And I mean, it was still a hearse. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But it, it got too costly to maintain and they parked yeah. it. And then and because then it. because it's Jamaica, the vandals stole doors off of it to sure. go to the scrapyard and get five bucks <laughs> for metal. Sure. You know, sure. The part about it that I enjoy that gives me the most pleasure is the hunt and the search and sometimes you come to an end and it goes nowhere and you can't, you either can't authenticate it or you can't find it, period. And that's okay because then you just put that all in the file and you put that file in the filing cabinet and you move on. And maybe you go back and visit that file again some other time. The jet is a perfect example. When that jet was made, brought to my attention, I really didn't get excited until things started falling into place. And then I wouldn't let it go. Then I really had to get to the bottom of it. I had to get the permission of the board. I don't sit on the board of directors anymore. I took a position as the archivist to be a neutral party. I sat as vice president for a long time. It's more exciting to be the archivist than it is to actually sit on the board. But I had to get permission to to spend their money. Yeah, right. So that's the part that I really enjoy. And the boat, the Moonraker boat, that's a separate, that has nothing to do with the foundation. That was me working for myself. But that was great just to go up to Montreal and have the guy uncover it. And I knew immediately, as soon as I saw it, that it was one from... Moonraker. And that was, that was a payoff for me. You know, that was great. So obviously people can contact you if they think they've got a lead on something. No, sure. James Bond vehicle related. I was going to ask, is there any other, you know, the, the exhibit and bond in motion is ending in LA in uh, October. Are there any others possibly lined up? Yeah. I can't, I can't divulge what we're working on until the ink is on the paper. But yeah, there's some things in the future that will continue. I can say with all certainty, it won't be as magnificent as the the full-scale bond in motion in Los Angeles. It was an impressive exhibit when it was in the center of London. 
but it pales in comparison to what we did at the Peterson. It's a huge venue. It's right in the middle of Beverly Hills. It's literally across the street from the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Science Museum. So it's in a wonderful part of Los Angeles. It's a prime location. Yeah. And like I said, it's one of the most prestigious automobiles museums in the world. So the sky was a limit for us. And if it does continue, it'll be a little bit smaller. It will still be very good, but it won't have quite the number of vehicles because those size venues are kind of hard to come by. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> there's not there's not a lot like that at all. No. And I'm sure some people, even though you probably can't answer this question, but I'm sure you get asked it a lot. Do you know the future of James Bond? Well, I can tell you that James Bond won't be a female. That I know. <laughs> it just wouldn't work. Batman wouldn't be a small kid. Batman would never be a teenager. Batman will be a man. Nothing against female. Females in the last few Bond movies have become the strongest characters they've ever. And I think it's great. I think yes. it's fabulous. Uh, no Time to Die was full of strong female characters. I thought it was one of the best films. I cried at the end of it. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. It's, and I made it, I try to make it a point not to know. I try. Sometimes I'm not successful. Somebody will tell me about something and I went, wait a minute, are you, did you just tell me about a plot in a movie? I didn't want to know that. But I didn't. I, I, knew, I knew a couple of little things, but I didn't know any of it. But it, yeah, it was a shock to me. People are saying, how are they going to do the next film? I'm not going to go into too many details because there's probably people who don't know, haven't seen No Time to Die. Yes. But I will tell you this, they'll, they'll figure it out. They've been making Bond movies for six decades and they have a team of people that know what they're doing and they will never do anything half-assed. They're going to do something that's actually going to work and they'll rewrite it and they'll reshoot it until it's perfect. And then when you go see it, you're going to go, oh yeah, that works. I could see how that would work. It's a shame that you may not see another movie until the holidays of 2025. And that's just a educated guess. That's just my gut telling me that they're really not going to want to go too much farther than that. You know, that's probably the earliest at that point. Well, too. you know, you can, I, I can tell you this, they've already been thinking about how the next one's going to go. This isn't waiting until 2023 to now sit down at a table and go, okay, what are we going to do? They've done <laughs> yeah. that. They've done that a few years ago already. But it's a massive undertaking to make a $300 million movie. A lot of planning, but you've got 23 and you've got 24 and most of 25 because it would come out probably toward the end of 25. But Amazon doesn't want to spend billions of dollars and have their biggest moneymaker just sit idle yes well doug th thank you so oh, you're much welcome. for doing this oh, you're um, welcome i really appreciate it anything else you want to plug or, or just people to to know about no i think you've done a good job of letting them know that I, i'm easily reachable through their website ianflemingfoundation.org my email is on there 
And if you know anybody who knows anybody and yet you don't know it to be true, uh, I'm, my ears are open because sometimes it turns out to be true and sometimes it doesn't. I don't want to dismiss anything because if I dismissed it and then I found out later that it was true, then I wouldn't be doing my job. Yes, so. <laughs> you would. You would be. Uh, you'd not be able to live with yourself. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Especially be like, oh, I I could have had that. Yeah, yeah. I know. Someone yeah. else buys it, or it gets demolished, or. Right. And I guess my story about the Jetstar proves that we don't care what kind of shape it's in. Yeah, you know, that's true. Because you're still finishing that. And that was in terrible it, it shape. Was a, it was a piece of junk. And we've we've brought things back from the junk pile before. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, thanks again, Doug. You're welcome. that concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast with a family member, friend, or neighbor that you think might enjoy learning new things about the people and places of Kankakee County. Also, a special thank you to our patrons for helping make this episode possible, including Karen Bishop, James Reardon, Jake Lee, Jesse Arsenal, Dave Barron, Daryl Damper, Samantha Rocknowski, Lake Iverson, Travis Garcia, Jane Bostwick, Don Harrison, Simon Topless, Scott Wright, Carrie O'Connell, Jamie Race, Joanne Barry, Anthony Vicelli, Eric Olson, Dan DeBoard, Jeff and Rosa Carroll, Teague Dreenan, Sandy and Steve Twait, and Rose Lucky. To become a podcast patron, go to kankakeepodcast.com and then just click on the patron tab. If you pledge $5 or more per month, you'll also hear your name announced on an episode. There's also other rewards like early access to new episodes, unedited versions of episodes, even video versions of select episodes, podcast merch, discounts on special events, and so much more. Your monthly pledge is truly appreciated. Our monthly goal right now is to reach $400 per month, and right now we're about 37% away from reaching that goal. So please sign up for the patron program today at kankakeepodcast.com. Our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. Talk to you soon. This river can-